Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast. Uh, I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. And I wanted to ask, have you ever pleaded with someone for their own good? It could be anything from as simple as, please, come watch my favorite movie with me. I know you will love it. To something more impactful, like a parent with their child. Please, don't make the choice to throw that solid wooden object at your sibling's head. It will not go well for anyone right now if you do. For me, a week ago, it was the end of the marking period at my school. And so that meant that I went from locker to locker pleading with students. Please, just turn in the last of your missing assignments. It will make such a difference to your grade. If you can relate to any of these examples or others where you've pleaded with someone, but it's for their own good, then you'll be able to feel the tone of today's text. Today we're going to discuss Isaiah 55, which is on page 397 if you have one of the church Bibles. And this is the conclusion of the entire major section of Isaiah, which you can see in the, the map on the front of your outline there, the um, chapter map. Um, and we've spent the last few weeks following Isaiah's argument of the mission of God's servant, which he talked about in chapter 53, to win victory through suffering. And this would establish for God a righteous family and a glorious city, which we read about in chapter 54. And now in chapter 55, we reach the thrust of Isaiah's argument, a plea for faith and repentance from his audience that they may participate in these glorious promises that God will accomplish. In Isaiah 55, 1 through 5, we'll start by hearing this plea for God's people to come and partake in God's love. Then verses 6 and 7, we will see that this participation requires repentance. And lastly, verses 8 through 13, we will see three characteristics of God that underlie this intense plea. So read Isaiah 55, 1 through 5, and hear God's plea to come in faith and partake in God's love. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money. And without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear That your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. 
Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The call to action in these verses is right up front in verse 1. And it's repeated four times. Come. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come buy without money and eat. Come buy without money and drink. God is pleading with his people. He's doing it by drawing their attention to their immense lack. And at the same time, he is offering to satisfy that lack. These verses starkly contrast receiving from God, though there is no way to earn it. The money that you think you have can't purchase this satisfaction. And the effort that you can bring to bear is incapable of earning that satisfaction. And so verse 2 asks the question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why, 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 why would you expend yourself to obtain things that can't actually bring you life or satisfy your deepest need? But the satisfaction that God promises to give freely without price isn't just a survival satisfaction. It's not just the minimum that we need. It's not just bread, but it's milk and wine and rich food, as it says in verse 2. And it requires only that we come. And so my soul cries out, how? How do I come? If it's not by bringing money or effort, is it by sacrifice? Is it by religious observation? Well, the fundamental question is, what does it mean for me to come? And so God answers this question in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Coming to God means listening to him. Allowing him to speak to you and hearing his word. The same point was made in verse 2. Listening diligently to God is the rich food. That we can delight in. Because his word, friends, is delightful. It is the thing that satisfies. It is the thing that we so desperately lack. And he says in this word that he will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love For David. 
Why can God's people receive from God that which they so desperately need? Because God made a covenant. God has promised to bring all of the nations to him. He has promised that he will be faithful and that he won't abandon his people. He promised to raise his servant to be a witness, a leader, a commander for the peoples. And because of this, verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that, you, that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. It is His covenant that makes this possible. That the nations will flock to this God and become a part of the great family and the glorious city that we read about in the previous chapter. Remember Isaiah 54. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. And the precious stones of the metals from which God promised to build every part of his city. All of this will be accomplished by God. It is steadfast. It is sure. But our participation in this great promise requires that we come and we listen to God. It is certain that he will accomplish his promise, but our participation is not. This reminds me of a date that I planned for a girl that I was interested in when I was in college. A friend had clued me in that her favorite band was coming to town, and I saw this as the perfect opportunity. He was going to get tickets, and so I was able to call her and say, hey, I have tickets to this band. Do you want to come on a date with me? And she said, yes. So I met with my friend. I'm excited. This whole thing has been planned. I told her the outline of everything that I was going to do. I met with my friend and he had one ticket. (laughs) So what did I do? (laughs) Well, I did the only thing I could. I gave her the ticket and she went on the date without me. And we never went on a second date (laughs) because I did not participate in this beautiful thing that had been planned. But God has promised for us an amazing date and he will accomplish it. But whether we're there or not depends on our choice to come and to listen. Can you think of a single word that encapsulates this entire idea This action of coming to God and listening to him. Having nothing with which to pay for our greatest need. And yet receiving from him the full satisfaction because of the promise that he made. Can you think of one word that means all of that? How about faith? Faith. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. My friends, God is saying that if we come to him in faith, that he will satisfy our souls and he will bring us life. And that is all that is required of us to gain that assurance, not because of us, but because of him. And that faith is so powerful that it enables us to do an amazing thing. Something that is utterly contrary to our human nature. This is the second point on your outline. It enables us to repent. Let's read Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The call to action in these verses is to draw near to God. It's still to come. This is an active turning towards God. Pursuing him in faith. Verse 6, seek the Lord and call upon him. And likewise, this is an active turning away, actively rejecting the current reality of sin. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And so we, the audience, must ask ourselves, does this apply to me? Am I the one with wicked thoughts and un- with wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts? And the answer is a resounding yes. God has just finished establishing in verses 1 through 5 that the audience is lacking even the basic elements of life or the means to obtain them. They're starving. They're dying. They're spending themselves in ways that do not bring life. And so it's essential that through faith, the hearer recognize their lack and turn away from their course. They must repent. This is the choice that faces each of us every day. Will you turn away from your course, from your unrighteous thoughts? Will I turn away from my course, from my unrighteous thoughts, and return to the Lord? Verse 7 continues, return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. He will abundantly pardon. My friends, the deep plea of Isaiah, of God, is to come, repent. 
I desperately need to apply this, my friends. You desperately need to apply this. Please hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit today. Hear the plea of God to forsake your own way and to turn to him. We are all in this room sinners, starving and unable to keep our own spirits alive. This message isn't just for the unbeliever. Although if you haven't turned to Jesus as your payment for life, then this plea is twice as urgent for you. But I confess that I don't live with the weight of this on my heart as strongly as I need to. I labor every day for that which does not satisfy me. For me, this could look like hiding my mistakes. Because if people don't know where I failed, then maybe they will still see me as competent. For me, it looks like not apologizing to my kids when I wrong them because I'm in charge. For me, it looks like coming at the very end of a problem to prayer. After I've done everything that I can, then I turn and I ask God for help. For you, it might be any of these things or it might be others. But I ask you this morning to ask God to call you away from your own path and to follow his. My friends, the reason that faith leads to repentance is because we are recognizing who God is. Our faith and our repentance rest on his identity, not on our own. We recognize that God is holy and he is victorious and he is glorious. And so we repent and we come to him. These are the next three points on your outline. And let's start by seeing the holiness of God in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We see this amazing contrast between the wicked way that we must forsake and the ways of God. We see the contrast between the thoughts of the unrighteous man and the thoughts of God. And surprise, surprise, God's way is better. God's thoughts are better. God is not like any other being. He is special. He is holy. He doesn't have the same lack, the same need that we do. This is the very identity that God has been revealing through the discipline of his children from the beginning of Isaiah. It's the rebellion and the idol worship. This is why God's people are in captivity in the first place. 
This is what they keep forgetting. That God is holy. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 expresses this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is holy. There is none like him. And the reminder, both in chapter 46 and what we're about to read in chapter 55, remind us that God's character is not just better than man's, but ultimately it is victorious. Which is the next section in verses 10 and 11. Read those with me now. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Wow. These verses begin by stating the obvious. Of course, the rain and the snow come down from heaven. They don't go the other way around. And it's inevitable. It is absolute that this is the way things happen. And the results of the rain and the snow are equally inevitable. Verse 10, making the earth bring forth and sprout, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, bringing life. And this is to what Yahweh God likens his word. An absolute, inevitable, immutable law of existence. God's word, friends, is victorious. Just like the rain comes from heaven, the word of Yahweh comes from the place of righteousness. And it comes down to a sinful world. Full of death. A world unable apart from him to accomplish the purpose for which it was created. But God's word shall not return to him empty. It shall accomplish that which God intends. Verse 11. And it shall succeed in the thing for which he sent it. It will bring Life. There can be no other outcome. When God speaks, he will accomplish his purpose. Everything, even the hard things, are accomplishing his will. 
When God's people were on the brink of entering the promised land, God warns them to keep his commandments. And he reminds them of the 40 years that they spent being tested in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.3 says this, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God's word brings life, and it cannot fail in that mission. It will be victorious. And so we reach another aspect of God's character on which our faith hangs. We know that God is holy, and we know that his word of life will be victorious. But all of this is to the everlasting glory of Yahweh, God the Father, which is the final section on your outline. Read Isaiah 55, 12, and 13 with me. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What a stunning conclusion. Picture this like a wedding procession. The bride and groom walking past their cheering friends. Or like a victory parade, an army coming home after a hard-won victory. The mountains and the hills break out in singing. And the trees line the path, (laughs) clapping their hands. What a picture of the result of God's victorious word. But like so many other passages in this text, I think there is an underlying contrast. And this contrast should draw our attention to just how far God has brought his people. Just as we must recognize our lack in order to fully appreciate his fulfillment, so we must understand the challenge that God has overcome in order to appreciate how glorious this victory really is. Verse 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, is a stark, stark contrast to the first time that mankind went out unwillingly from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, we hear how because of man's rebellion, God sent mankind out, not with joy and peace, but with a sword. Read Genesis 3, 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground 
from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The beginning of our story, friends, started with mankind rejecting the word of God. But it ends with us listening. It started with them being driven out in shame and at war with God. But it ends with us listening. In joy and peace. There's also a contrast a few verses earlier in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Where the Lord says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. This is how we started our journey. But now in Isaiah 55, 13, at the climax of God's invitation, God says this, instead of thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. My friends, this is the point of all of it. Eden is restored. Fellowship with God is restored. Even the great fall of mankind is made right through the power and the majesty of God's incomparable plan. How glorious is our God. He gets all the glory for his namesake. We are redeemed. And finally, we are able to fulfill that for which we were created glorifying Yahweh our God. No longer praising idols, no longer following our own path or our evil thoughts, but living as an everlasting sign of the greatness of God. There can be no greater purpose for us than to fulfill the meaning of our creation. And so, friends, we're left with the same call that began this chapter. Come, 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 listen to Yahweh. This is our application. Come to the Lord. If it's for the first time, come and let the angels rejoice. If it's in the midst of tribulation or uncertainty, come. If it's in repentance of your sin, come. If it's in recognition of just the purpose of your life, come. Come to Jesus. Hear that your soul may live. And God will make with you an everlasting covenant. So to summarize, we've heard God's heart calling out to mankind to come to him. Through their faith, 
in him by repentance, turning away from wickedness and embracing the payment through Jesus that we could never pay ourselves. We can do this not because of our own assurance, but because of the assurance of God who is holy, unlike any man, unlike any other. He will accomplish his purpose of life through his word, restoring the purpose of man, which was broken at the very beginning, establishing an eternal sign of his unending glory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, uh, for this word that you've brought to us this morning. And I thank you, God, that you have promised that it will accomplish its purpose. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that here this morning, that your word would accomplish its purpose. In spite of all of the things which we fail to do, Lord, you do not fail in your purposes. And we thank you, God, that you have called us to come and to hear and to be a part of this family that you have promised, Lord. It's so glorious. You are such a good God. Lord, help us this week as we go out to remember this and to keep this in mind. Amen.